as we begin a new series of messages today called The Blessed Life. Our text is going to be that remarkable passage of Jesus that introduces the Sermon on the Mount. It's called by most people the Beatitudes, and it's an important passage of Scripture. The Sermon on the Mount, of course, is the most important and significant and most often studied body of teaching that Jesus ever gave. It composes three chapters in Matthew, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, and we'll turn our attention to the larger study of the Sermon on the Mount once we're finished with the introduction, but I think it's worthwhile to take a few minutes and look at these opening statements to this most significant teaching that Jesus ever gave, because the Sermon on the Mount, if you know anything about it at all, is kind of a, a roadmap for Christian ethics. The Sermon on the Mount is about kingdom responsibility, or what we often call kingdom living, how we're supposed to live. How is a true believer supposed to be recognized swimming upstream in a world that's headed the other direction? And the Beatitudes form a very fitting introduction to this teaching on kingdom ethics because it's a reminder that in the kingdom of God, being always comes before doing. In other words, who you are deep within the inner recesses of your life is always more significant than how you live or how you behave because in just about any realm, if you're good enough, you can fake it. Amen. And so your character is more significant to God than your conduct. And that's why the Beatitudes are such an important part of the Sermon on the Mount. Because these Beatitudes indicate the core conduct, or the core character, rather, of a believer. And from that character, right conduct will spring. But you need to begin with character rather than beginning with conduct. And this is where happiness comes from. This is important as it relates to this incredible question about happiness. Because while the world tends to frame happiness in terms of circumstances, in other words, what happens to you, Jesus frames happiness in terms of character. Uh, These Beatitudes show us the difference between a worldly person and a kingdom person. They're identifying marks. And the difference between a worldly person and a kingdom person is a radical difference. In fact, uh, one of the things I like about the Beatitudes is that they really reveal how Christianity is an upside-down life. In fact, I started to entitle this series, The Upside-Down Life. Because that's reflected in these Beatitudes. It's a countercultural life. And one of the ways we see that concerns this matter of happiness and contentment, how you find it, where it comes from, how you consistently live in it, namely that happiness is not determined by what's going on around you or what happens to you. Happiness is always determined by what's going on inside of you. And that's the question today. What's God doing in your life? What's God up to in your life? What's God teaching you in your life? If I were to bring you up here, if I were to walk out there and grab you by the arm and say, Stevie, come up here with me for just a minute. I got a couple of questions I'm going to ask you. What's God doing in your life? How would you answer that? Well, it's very important because these Beatitudes are always a reflection of something that God is doing in your life. I mean, we've spent the whole morning singing about grace today. So don't you go out of here thinking that you can just put enough effort 
and create this kind of stuff in your life on your own. You can't do it. It's something that you submit to God and that God does to you, in you, and through you. So understand that as it relates to happiness, which is the thing everybody's chasing, right? If you were to ask people, what's the purpose of your life? I just want to be happy. That's what 9.9 out of every 10 people would say that the purpose in life is. To find happiness, be happy, whatever the case might be. But the thing about it is most people aren't, so we got trouble in bedrock, right? That's what people think life amounts to, but most people haven't gotten it. Happiness for most people is like trying to catch a butterfly with your bare hand, right? It's like the dog chasing its every elusive tail. It just goes round and round and round in circles, but it never really catches the doggone thing, amen? And so if you want to find happiness, happiness comes ultimately in a life and to a life that's totally submitted to God. Now, at the beginning of this study, let's take a look at all of them uh, today. And so we're going to stand as we honor the reading of God's Word, but we're going to pick them apart over the next few weeks, one at a time. But we'll look at the whole passage today, beginning in Matthew chapter 5 and verse number 1. In fact, let's just read them off the screen out loud together. Ready? Together. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. He opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and other all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is God's word and all God's people said. Father, be a blessing to your people who have gathered in this place today. Speak to us now by your spirit through your word that we might hear and obey that your name through us, through our church, through our families, through us individually as people may be glorified and magnified throughout the world. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, amen. Thank you, church. You may be seated. The word beatitude is actually a derivative of a Latin word, beatus, which means happy. That's why oftentimes in modern translations, rather than seeing all those blesseds, if it's a super modern translation or paraphrastic translation, it'll use the word happy instead of the word blessed. Beatus, happy. In fact, in the Greek New Testament, the word that's used there that's translated blessed is a word that basically means happy or sufficient or inwardly content. And of course, that's another thing that's ever elusive in the lives of many people. Contentment is something that's really hard to find. And when you read these Beatitudes with that in mind, 
I mean, when you talk about happiness, I mean, you just read them. They kind of seem like contradictions, don't they? Blessed are the poor in spirit. Happy are they who are in some sense poor. Happy are those who mourn, right? Happy are the meek, really. Happy are the persecuted. See, at first glance, they don't make a whole lot of sense. They're upside down from the perspective of the rest of the world. But what Jesus, of course, is saying here is that personal happiness and contentment is not based on external stuff. It's not based on changing circumstances. Your happiness is always predicated on your position in Christ, the new you that Jesus has changed you to be. And that means, of course, that true happiness is not a product of changing circumstances around me. True happiness is a result of the constant presence of Christ within me. And this is why Jesus said, abide in me. Maintain this ongoing, ever-deepening, ever-increasing relationship with me, and you'll be ever content and constantly happy in life. Distance yourself from me, and you'll find that happiness is indeed like that butterfly. It can be really hard to catch. Uh, Sometimes we use the sermon bumpers to kind of check out between the singing and the preaching. Plan lunch, plan our day, think about our next vacation. But I hope you were paying attention to it because you know those beautiful floral scenes started out in black and white. And then they went to what? They went to color. That's right. That's an artistic kind of thing, man. It's like deeply uh, observed. And so you do have set up straight and pay attention. But that's very, very fitting. That's a description of the Beatitudes. They seem upside down at first. They don't seem to make a whole lot of sense until you properly understand them. And in Christ, they make perfect sense. Now, every one of these Beatitudes are important. They're like the fruit of the Spirit. Well, pastor, I do real good with this and with that, but I'm really lacking in patience and self Well, you don't get to cherry pick. I mean, the fruit of the Spirit, it's like all nine of them belong to you as a new creature in Christ. And the same is true with these Beatitudes. You don't get to go in there and cherry pick five out of the eight to major on. This is what a believer looks like as distinct from the carnal. This is what a kingdom citizen looks like as separate and distinct. This is what a Christian man or a Christian woman is supposed to look like. And every single one of these that Jesus mentioned is supposed to be highlighted and obvious in your life. Now, today, we want to take a few minutes to look at the first of these eight kingdom attitudes, and here's what it says in verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, what's that all about? Well, that's what we want to talk about for the next few minutes, and so let's approach it today by allowing me to ask and try to answer three very important questions. First, what does this mean? Blessed are the poor in spirit. That phrase, poor in spirit, if you want to boil it down to one word, write this down in your notes. It's the word humility. Humility. In fact, I've titled this message, Finding Happiness in Humility. And so poor to be poor in spirit speaks of the personal humility that's fundamentally necessary for a right relationship with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. Nobody ever comes to God proud. Well, you might come to God proudly, but God's going to break that pride. It's the first thing he's going to do. Because there are no proud people in heaven, right? 
So it's important to understand that because the phrase here, poor in spirit, is very mis- uh, easy to misinterpret. What is Jesus not talking about? Well, to be poor in spirit is not to be financially poor. That's not what Jesus is talking about here. He's not saying that the way to happiness is through financial poverty. So take a deep breath this morning, amen? You don't have to go out and divest everything that you've got in order uh, to be happy in life because that's just not taught in the Bible. Nowhere in Scripture is it taught that it's a virtue or a blessing to be financially poor. And from a spiritual standpoint, the poor can be just as spiritually destitute as the rich can be. So being poor in spirit doesn't have anything to do with how much money you do or you don't have. Nor does poor in spirit mean having a low self-esteem so that you go around all the time putting yourself down and walking with slumped shoulders. Some people go around with such a woe is me mentality. I mean, there's some people that you meet in life act like they were the cruise director on the Titanic, you know, just walking around slump-shouldered all the time, woe is me. They go around their sackcloth and ashes as if trying to impress other people with how humble they actually are. Well, that's what we call a false humility, and it's actually a form of pride. And so you don't want to be proud of your humility because to be proud of your humility is to not have it at all. But if that's the case, what does it mean to be poor in spirit? Well, in the Greek New Testament, there are two words for poor, fundamentally, translated poor throughout the pages of the New Testament. One you find, for example, in that story in Luke 21 where Jesus tells the account of the widow who goes to the temple and she reaches into her little coin purse and she pulls out two copper coins and she throws them in the offering plate. Well, let me ask you a question. Was that a poor woman by any stretch of the, of the definition, yes or no? Well, yes, it was, but here's the thing. At least she had something to give, Right? So at least she had something to buy bread with. She had something to draw from. That's one concept of poverty in the New Testament. You're poor, you don't have a lot, but at least you've got something. But then there's another word that's even more extreme than that. And it's used by Jesus in the 16th chapter of Luke when he tells that story of the rich man and Lazarus. Lazarus was that poor, destitute man, right? In fact, that's what that word poor means. When it's applied to Lazarus in Luke chapter 16, not the Lazarus that died that Jesus raised from the dead, but this poor beggar named Lazarus. It's a word that's applied to him that means abject poverty. This is a guy that's got nothing but the loincloth around his waist, and that's it. Abject poverty, total destitution. And that guy was totally destitute. He was just plopped down on the sidewalk in front of the rich man's house every day. So poor, the Bible says, that the dogs came and licked at the open wounds that had ravaged his body. That man was not just poor. He was a beggar. Y'all tracking with me? Say amen. When Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, it's the second word that he's using, not the first. Literally, we could translate it, blessed are the spiritual beggars, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So what does it mean to be poor in spirit? It's to recognize how insignificant you are spiritually. It's to recognize how in your own life, in your own person, in your own conduct, 
You have absolutely nothing of spiritual value to bring before God, to lay before him in all of his holiness. It's an indication that all of us in our sin and because of sin are totally and completely bankrupt as we stand in the presence of a holy God. I got nothing to offer God. I'm incapable of approaching God on my terms because I don't have anything of value to offer God at all. I'm totally dependent on God's mercy, on God's love, on God's kindness, and on God's grace. Let me see if Scripture can help us interpret Scripture. Look with me, if you would, at Isaiah chapter 57 in the 15th verse. For thus says the one, capital O, who is high and lifted up, that's God. For thus says the one who inhabits eternity. For thus says the one who is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place. And also with him who is of a what? Contrite and what? Lowly spirit. To revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. That's what it means to be poor in spirit. It means to be of a lowly spirit, to recognize your spiritual destitution as you stand face to face in the presence of a holy God. Or like the line says in that old hymn, Rock of Ages, cleft for me, in my hand, no price I bring. Simply to your cross, I claim. Is everybody with me on what it means? Blessed are the poor in spirit. That's what it means. But then question number two, why is it listed first? I do think that there oftentimes, sometimes you have to be careful here because sometimes there's not always a logical order when you find these virtue lists in Scripture, but sometimes there are. For example, with the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is what? Love. See, and that's important. I mean, that's the greatest of all Christian virtues. But I think there's a reason that Jesus lists this one first. I believe there is something of a logical order of these Beatitudes. And this one is here first because of its priority in salvation. Because I mentioned a moment ago, it's impossible to be proud and to be saved. I mean, pride has to be broken before anybody can be born again. No one can be saved unless and until they recognize just how sinful they are, just how undeserving of salvation that they are. Nobody can be saved until they realize how morally bankrupt they are before God. Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So mark this down. It is impossible to strut into the presence of a holy God. It's impossible to strut proudly into the kingdom of heaven. The psalmist said in Psalm 149, the Lord takes pleasure in his people He adorns the who? He adorns the humble with salvation. Circle that last phrase in red letters. This is what Jesus is talking about. You know what your greatest need is? Simply put, your greatest need is your greatest need. And that is to recognize that you got no hope apart from the gospel of Jesus Christ. Salvation begins with an awareness of just how much God hates sin. Salvation begins with an awareness of just how sinful and corrupt you are by nature. And when you understand how sinful you are and you understand how holy God is and 
you understand how, because of his holiness, God hates sin and the wrath of God must come upon sin and judge it in its fullest intensity? Man, oh man, only when you realize that are you in a position where you can ever be born again. God hates sin. And the root of all sin is what? Pride. It's what you want, right? Proverbs 16 and 5. Everyone who is arrogant in heart is a what? Say it out loud. Is a abomination to the Lord. Be assured he will not go unpunished. In other words, that arrogant person, the person whose life is all about them, will one day be subject to the judgment. They will not go unpunished. You have to be broken of that. You have to become poor in spirit in order to find your way into the kingdom of heaven. Or Zephaniah chapter 2 and verse 3 where the prophet says, Seek the Lord, all you humble of the land. Seek righteousness. Seek humility. Perhaps you may be hidden on the day of the anger of the Lord. Do you see the critical connection between a humble spirit, a poverty of spirit, and, a sal uh, and salvation granted by a holy God? <clears throat> Impossible to strut into the kingdom of heaven. You have to approach God with great humility. A simple translation of that passage in Zephaniah 2 is 1 Peter 5, 5 that simply says, God, in fact, say it out loud with me. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the, gives grace to the humble. That's right. So that's how important humility is. Only those who recognize their spiritual poverty, only those who recognize the depth of their greatest need can inherit the kingdom of God. Now, does it make sense why it's listed first? None of the rest of them can ever be properly interpreted apart from this one. This is where the Christian life has to begin. All of eternity is riding on whether or not your spiritual and personal pride has been broken. Because where there's no brokenness, no sense of shame, no sense of personal desperation. There can never be salvation. I mean, it's like Isaiah, the Old Testament prophet. I mean, Isaiah was a great prophet, <clears throat> great man of God. But I, it makes me chuckle a little bit when I start reading Isaiah because in the first few chapters, particularly in Isaiah chapter 3 uh, and 4, and then in Isaiah chapter 5 especially, like any good prophet of that era, um, Isaiah was a pretty good railer. You all know what I mean by railer? I mean, you're talking about hellfire and brimstone preacher. Isaiah was one of those puppies. And he just called it like he saw it, right? And so you get to the fifth chapter of Isaiah, and over and over again, Isaiah is saying the same thing. Woe are you. Woe are you. Woe unto you. And so he's pronouncing all these woes on all the people because of their disobedience and their character is broken. They're living far from God. They're bowing down before pagan isles. And so he just pronounces this series of judgments. Woe be unto you. Woe be unto you. Woe be unto you. And then you turn the page and you get to Isaiah chapter 6. And Isaiah has this incredible vision of a holy God, high and lifted up. And what's the next? Once he sees the Lord, what's the next word out of his mouth? Woe is me. 
I am undone. I'm a man of unclean lips, living among people of unclean lips. He quit talking about everybody else in order that he might deal with himself. That's what it means to be poor in spirit. Y'all tracking with me this morning? That's what it means to be poor in spirit. Apart from God's amazing grace, woe is me. Everybody that eventually populates heaven will all have one thing in common. They will have all at one time been a spiritual beggar. They will have all recognized that their greatest need was their greatest need. And they bowed in humility, broken when they saw the holiness of God high and lifted up and then said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Until that happens, you can never be saved. And until that happens, try as you might to find it wherever and with whomever, you'll never find lasting happiness, joy, peace, and contentment. Because blessed are the poor in spirit. That's what it means. That's why it's listed first. But then let me wax practically for just a couple of minutes as we conclude by asking why is it important? <clears throat> why is this business of humility so important? Humility and happiness are really two sides of the same coin. And there are some important benefits that come with learning to walk humbly before the Lord and humbly with the Lord. Let me give you three things to chew on. First of all, humility removes the burden of responsibility for things that I can't control. I mean, proud people are typically, how many of you know control freaks? Most control freaks are not humble people. I'm just telling you that. It's all about them. But proud, proud people are those who think that they, they can fix everything, right? They control everything. They've got the answers to life's greatest questions all figured out. Here's the thing about humility. Humility helps you to understand that you don't have everything figured out. You don't have the answer to the most complex question in life. And here's the beautiful thing. You don't have to know all the answers because you've got like a really high trust in a sovereign God who does have all the answers. And so the most important thing than trying to figure out all the answers to life's most complicated questions is just trust in a creator God who's got all of that hidden in the hollow of his hand and, and is responsible for all of it. I'm never going to be able to solve all the world's problems, and the world's got a lot of problems. Would you not agree? I, and when you admit that, it kind of frees you from this prison of responsibility for things that God never intended for you or me to solve, things that are really ultimately his responsibility. I mean, things are never going to be ideal in this life, and woe to that person who tries to make this world heaven on earth. It's never going to happen. Things are never going to be ideal. They're never going to be utopian. They're never going to be perfect. But here's the thing. I can still be happy. I can still walk in the joy of the Lord because the joy of the Lord is my strength. And part of that is just realizing I'm not in control of everything. 
and I can't control everything. But God is in control, and because God is in control, my life is secure. Somebody say amen. So take, listen, some of us just need to learn to lighten up for crying out loud. Quit taking yourself so seriously. Take God very seriously. That's a prescription for happiness. A second benefit of humility is it strengthens my personal relationships. Proud folk typically live in a wake of broken relationships. If you're going to have healthy relationships this side of heaven, <clears throat> you need to walk in humility. Because I don't know anybody that likes to walk closely uh, with somebody that's proud and self-centered, right? I mean, ego-driven people are time-consuming. They're high, HMIs, high-maintenance individuals. Can I have an amen this morning? You know somebody that's high-maintenance, you're probably dealing with a proud person. And here's the thing. They're rarely, if ever, happy. They're rarely satisfied with anything, rarely content. You say, well, you know, if, if you're talking about me, it's just hard for me to be content. It's hard for me to walk in joy consistently. Well, maybe just do an evaluation. If you're a guy that, or a gal that has to have your way all the time, and if you don't get your way, then you're not going to be happy, that's probably the problem. Pride. I mean, humility, it doesn't mean that you think less of yourself. I mean, I think that we can have a very high view of ourselves if we understand it properly. God created me in his image. God values me. And because God values me, I need to value me and I need to take care of me. And there's some things that I need to pay attention to. That's all very healthy. So humility doesn't necessarily mean that you think less of yourself, but I tell you what it does mean. It means that you think more about others than you do about you. That much I know for sure biblically. Because is that not the model that our Lord Jesus gave us? Jesus was the greatest of all givers. And last time I checked, he was a pretty happy guy. He was a pretty joyful man. Even though life dealt him some bitter blows, even though he knew he was on a road that would lead to the cross, he never lost his joy. He always did the will of God. He was content to rest in the perfect plan of God for his life. And what do the scriptures say? Let this attitude be in you. That was also in Christ Jesus. In fact, look at the larger passage with me from Philippians 2 and verse 3. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. But in what? Say it out loud. In humility, count others more significant than yourselves. That's just so important. Let each of you look not only to his own interest. So there's self-value. You need to pay attention to your own personal needs, your own personal development. But then Paul says, look not only to your own interest, but also to the interest of who? Others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, selfishly held on to, but emptied himself. Do you see that? Some translations say he made himself nothing. And that's the very definition of humility. If you're going to have strong, lasting, happy relationships, you cannot live without 
humility. And then finally, an attitude of humility releases the power of God in my life. It releases the power of God. The Apostle Paul was very famous for talking about how he had found strength through weakness. For when I am weak, Paul says, then I am what? Strong. That's right. And this is why the Bible says in Micah chapter 6, what does the Lord require of you? Would you circle the word require, please? What does the Lord require of those who would belong to him? The answer, act justly, love mercy, and walk how? Humbly with your God. See, if you're here today and <clears throat> you need spiritual power that can only come through this abiding, continual relationship with God by the Spirit, you need to learn how to cultivate humility because that's where the power comes from. Every one of us in here need the power of God. Would you not agree with that today? Amen. I need God's power to make it through the day. I need God's power to make it through this next week. Some of you got a heavy week ahead. And you need the power of God. Man, I'd ha I would hate to think that I had to face this life in this world at this time in my own strength. In my own resources. In my own power. Man, all of the challenges of life, the disappointments, the defeats, the obstacles. Here's the good news of the gospel. You don't have to handle it alone. You can live in the power of God, but that comes through a life of humble obedience to a holy God, or as James says in the fourth chapter of James, humble yourself before the Lord, and he will what? He will exalt you. He will lift you up, and that's the key. The world says Blessed are the powerful. The world says blessed are the strong, blessed are the popular, blessed are the wealthy, blessed are the beautiful. But can I just conclude this morning by saying you can have all of those in abundance and still be a miserable wretch in life. More to the point, you can have all of those and still be lost spiritually. Jesus said that the highway to happiness begins with humility. Blessed are the poor in spirit, those desperate for God, for theirs and theirs alone is the kingdom of heaven. This is God's word and all God's people said, <clears throat>